First Samuel chapter 26, verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakaleah, opposite Jezimon? And then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakaleah, which is opposite Jezimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. The last time that Saul was out looking for David, he happened upon him by surprise there in the area where David was hiding out in the cave of Engedi or the cave of Adullam in the wilderness there of Engedi. And it was there that God brought Saul into the very cave where David and his men were hiding out. And we know that story. We read it a few chapters before where David showed grace and mercy to uh Saul there in the cave and cut off a piece of his robe and then was grieved because of it afterwards that he had touched the Lord's anointed. Well, this time David is trying to avoid Saul coming upon him by surprise. And so he sends spies out to kind of see where Saul is at, kind of to see what Saul is up to. And I think that as we look at this scene, once again, we note here that here's Saul coming with 3,000 men. He's looking for David. He's been hunting for David for three years. He's been on the prowl. He's been looking. He's been seeking to bring David down. David has his 600 men. Saul with his 3,000 chosen soldiers whose main aim was to be looking for David during this particular time. Now, I see a spiritual principle in this. And the spiritual principle is this, that we have an adversary who is on the prowl. Peter described him as a roaring lion who's seeking whom he may devour. Job, in the story of Job, Satan is described there as going to and fro throughout the earth. And that's the picture that, that Peter paints. To and fro throughout the earth looking for who he may devour. That's our adversary, the devil. And so we, like David, need to be on guard. We need to be on the lookout. We need to, to be aware of how he might seek to attack. David sent out spies. And you know what? I think we have our own spy. The spy that God has given to us, well, it's the Holy Spirit there in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, whom God has commissioned to be there to teach us, to instruct us, to help us, to aid us. And the Holy Spirit, in some ways, he acts as if a spy in this way. If we are tuned into his voice, he will notify us of what the enemy is up to. If you are tuned into the voice of the Lord, he will notify you. He will he will speak to your heart. He will bring discernment. I have had discernment at times that someone was wanting to get close to me for the wrong reasons, that they were wanting to get close to me because they had an agenda to hurt me or they wanted to take advantage of me or they wanted to to use me. 
There have been times when the Holy Spirit has impressed upon my heart that something was not right, an attitude in my heart that the enemy was wanting to exploit, that the enemy was wanting to use, and the Holy Spirit there acting in a, in a sense as a spy to just say, hey, you know what? The enemy is on the prowl. And just like the Lord came to Cain and said, sin lies at the door, Cain, and it seeks to have its way with you, but you should rule over it. The Holy Spirit has had that conversation with me many times as well. Now, here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. The more that you respond to his voice, when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to avoid sin, when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to step out in faith, when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to engage in some form of ministry, the more that you respond to that prompting, the more that that voice grows loud and clear in your hearts the more that you just find yourself in an exciting way of living where it's just the Holy Spirit prompting you and leading you, but the more that you resist that voice, you know what, the more faint that it grows. David here is listening. He's tuned into these spies that he has sent out. And so too, we need to be tuned into the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pick it up in verse 5. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David now is going on the offensive. He's not just waiting. He's not going to be surprised. He's listened to the spies and he's acting now. So he goes to the very place where Saul is camping out. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And now Saul lay within the camp with the people and camped all around him. So Saul is there. Picture this scene. His soldiers are, are, are camping out and, 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 and Saul is there and, and they're all sleeping and Saul's in the middle and he's got this pack of guys surrounding him like a circle. So they've got their king just surrounded. They're, they're, they're laying there in a sense to protect him. And then it says, then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Now, here we see David is a guy who does his own dirty work. He's saying, look, I'm going to go down. Who's going to go with me? He wasn't going to just send some guys, but he was going to go down. Verse seven. So David and Abishai came to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. This guy's radical. It's like, man, let me do him in right now. It'll only take me one shot, David. Do you see a kind of a deja vu happening here? This is the same thing we saw early on a couple chapters before in the cave that David's men, what were they saying? Hey, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. That's what Abishai is saying here. Look, God set this up. This is awesome. This is wonderful. He, he, he brought him right here to you. What is David going to do? Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
And David said furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. And so David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. The Lord causes a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and his men. The Lord was in this little setup. And the Lord causes this deep sleep to fall upon Saul so that David can show Saul grace once again. I need to pray that the Lord would do this for me. A deep sleep. I am such a light sleeper. You know, they talk about REM sleep. I never reach REM sleep. I hardly ever dream, or at least I, I don't know that I dream, but... It frustrates me sometimes, especially when I'm on a trip on an airplane, going over on a long trip. I never can sleep on these trips. Now, I fly with Howard and Rob Nash and, you know, these guys, they're on the plane. And after, you know, an hour or so we get up, here's what they look like. Yeah, (laughs) they're just out, mouth open. You know, it's like I I walk by them, throw things in their mouth, you know, and (laughs) that type of thing. But when I was coming back from Africa this last time, I so much wanted to sleep because we had a long, long flight. Rick Coburn, the pastor from Dallas, he gave me this pill. And he said, look, a lady in my church, she gave me this. She's a flight attendant. She said, this is what they use. It's a narcotic. It'll knock you out. (laughs) He says, but you wake up and you could have some short-term memory loss and, you know... (laughs) This type of thing. And so I was really leery. Like, should I really take this? But I really wanted to sleep. And, and, and I decided not to. Now, I'm so glad that I didn't. Because on those type of trips, I really try to, to usually try to get a seat in the exit row. Well, I didn't sleep very much at all. I didn't take the pill. But I did take it when I got home. That next day, I got home. And I, when I finally went to I took this pill. And I was out. I was gone. But here's the thing. In the middle of the night, now picture this. If this happened when I'm sitting by the exit row, I wake up in the middle of the night, Denise tells me, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. You know, I, I don't remember it. I don't know what was going on. But I was like, just, could you imagine on the airplane? You know, I'm screaming. Exit row? Oh, it would have been horrible. But, you know, anyway, this was not a pill, though. David, Saul didn't need a pill. He just needed the Lord. You know, the Lord did this. But notice here, David holds back Abishai from touching the Lord's anointed. And you recall in that earlier study, we noted how every believer is the Lord's anointed. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been called by the Lord. He has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We could say that every person here who knows the Lord, who's a believer in Jesus Christ, could have this title. You are the Lord's anointed in the sense that you have been called. You are his child. You've been indwelt with his Holy Spirit. And we need to practice what David is doing here. You see, there's a lot of Abishai's 
in the body of Christ. Those who have the tendency to come down on others in the body, to be critical, to gossip, to come with a heavy hand. We need to heed the words of David in verse 9. Notice it again. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In other words, is it ever right? Is it ever right to come down on, to come against another brother or sister in the Lord? The only thing that I can think of where it would be right was if somebody is involved in sharing some type of heresy. Other than that, we need to watch that we not strike the Lord's anointed. And so once again, David is showing grace to Saul. We pick it up in verse 13. Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, and said, do, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you? Calling out to the king. And so David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. And this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. And then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So once again, David is calling out and saying to Saul, let the Lord, if I have wronged you, let the Lord show me, let the Lord give me what I deserve if I have wronged you, Saul. But if not, if this is just the voice of men, if this is just people, let them be. Accursed. Now notice Saul's reaction. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. And may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son, David, you shall both do great things and also still prevail. And so David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. I'm blessed here by the great grace and humility 
that I see in David. Notice in verse 18, David refers to Saul as his Lord and himself as Saul's servant. Now, I think most of us in this, we would have been prone to refer to Saul as a jerk. You know, that would have been, you know, our mode of operation. That would have been our tendency. You know, Saul, what are you? Why are you being such a jerk? You know, David doesn't do that. We see his grace. We see his humility. And when I read this, when I see this, when I see his reaction, when I see his heart, don't you find yourself wanting to be like David? Don't you find yourself wanting to have his heart, wanting to have his perspective? I know I do. And you know what? We can. In fact, that's what this story, that, that, that's what this perspective of David's life is all about. It's a picture of what you and I can be in Christ. What we can be with the help of Jesus. That we can respond in this type of way to those who come against us. We too can be people after God's own heart. But at the same time in this story, We also see a contrast. We see another perspective because we see the picture here of Saul. We see in Saul what we are to avoid. Saul makes a very interesting assessment of his own life there in verse 21. Notice again, he says, I have sinned first of all. And then at the end of the verse, he says, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. That was the sad assessment of Saul's life. I have sinned. I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. That's what was going on in Saul. That's what was going to go on on Saul's tombstone. That was really the epitaph. That was the story, if you would, of his life. G. Campbell Morgan had this to say about these words of Saul. In these words, we have a perfect autobiography. In them, the complete life story of this man is told. There had been given to him the spirit of God, the friendship of Samuel, the devotion of men whose hearts God had touched. He had acted so poorly, though, that the spirit of God departed from him. Samuel had been unable to help him and the hearts of the people had been turned away from him. The whole secret was that he had leaned to his own understanding and had failed to obey and so had become the evil-tempered man that he was, mastered by hatred and fighting against God. That was Saul. That's what Saul became. Now, Jesus said that there are two roads that we can find ourselves walking on. Two roads that we can be walking on. There's a broad road that is fueled by self-centeredness, that is fueled by pride, that is fueled by self-promotion and sin. And that road promises that it promises you the world, but it leads to destruction. That's the broad road. But then there's a narrow road, which is difficult and hard. It's that road that Jesus walked where he said, Not my will, Father, but your will be done. That road, it leads to life. Listen, at the end of the broad road, it will be, I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. At the end of the narrow road, it's as you have valued life, so your life will be valued in the eyes of God. Which one do you want? Which statement is going to be written above your life? I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly or well done, my good and faithful servant. 
enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, notice verse 24. I think it is really shares with us the key to David's strength and character is that David wasn't so concerned about being valued in the eyes of Saul. Nor was David concerned about being valued in the eyes of, of the soldiers or the people. David, though, wanted to be valued in the eyes of God. That's what mattered to David the most. That's why David would not touch the Lord's anointed. That's why he wouldn't listen to the instruction or the, the encouragement of his men to take Saul's life. It was that which motivated him to behave wisely in these matters. David was concerned about it. It was really the mark of his life at this particular point. He wanted, he sought, he was concerned about how he was valued in the eyes of God, not the eyes of men. So chapter 26 ends with David showing grace and mercy to Saul yet again. And David once again is seen here in this story as a hero, as a great example. But as we move into chapter 27, we see a new side of David. Now, we're not sure, I'm not sure how much time has elapsed or elapses between chapter 26 and chapter 27, but there seems to be some amount of time. And as we look at David in chapter 27, it's a different David. It's not David the hero. It's not David who's behaving wisely, but it's David the depressed. It's David who is struggling. It's David who's acting in a way that is unbecoming and unflattering and not good. It's David acting in a way that doesn't honor God. Now, we don't like to see these type of chapters where the heroes falter or the heroes fail. But I thank God that he has placed in his holy word in, in the Bible, these chapters that he's placed these in there, because if he didn't, then all of us, we would have had to just, you know, pack it up and throw in the towel a long time ago. But because he lays out these chapters, even though they're hard to take, they give us hope. Even though we see our hero, even we see though we see someone that we might look at and go, oh, I look up to that person, I admire them. We, we see them in an unflattering light. It gives us an indication and a hope that as God dealt with them, so he can deal with us. It gives us hope. So we pick it up in verse one of chapter 27. And David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Now, here we see that things had become so bad. Things had become so terrible for the sweet shepherd of Israel that now he's forsaking his calling. Now he's forsaking his country. Now he's basically forsaking his God and he's going to live with the enemy. Now that's depression. You know, depression is something that we know a lot about. Time magazine in a front page story a couple of years back called depression a national epidemic. If that was true back then. Think about how worse it is now. Depression touches every segment of our society. Old people get depressed. Young people get depressed. Poor people get depressed. Rich people get depressed. Here was one that really surprised me, though. There was this wave of depression that 
is hitting young women in college between the ages of 18 to 25. Now, you're probably thinking, what's so surprising about that? College is hard. And 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 those who aren't doing well, of course, they're going to get depressed. But here's what was interesting about this article is that it wasn't the ones who were doing poorly that were getting depressed. It was the super achievers. It was the the women, the young ladies that were scoring in the top percentile of their classes. They were the ones who were jumping out of windows and off of bridges and ending their life because they were depressed. And they have no explanation for it than this, that the pressure became so intense, they just couldn't take it. They couldn't cope. People get depressed if they fail, but sometimes they get even more depressed when they succeed. David is in a place here where no doubt he was under a lot of pressure. Think about it. He's got 600 men who are depending upon him. 600 men who have come to him. But we also find here that it's not just these men, but it's their families. There could have been upwards to 3,000 people with David. And what are they doing? They're camping out. You ever gone camping with 20 people? That can be stressful. Think about going camping with 3,000 people. You know, that, that would be a headache. David's on the run. He's got to find a place for all of these people. He was under a lot of pressure here. And then Saul's breathing down his neck. So what does David do? He's at the end of his rope and he runs to the world. He runs back to the Philistines. Again, we've seen this chapter or this picture once before. A few chapters back, David did the same thing. He ran to the world. He ran to the Philistines. He pretends to be mad. You know, for some reason, that can be a common practice when we get depressed. We run to the world. We run back to the old life. We run back to, 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 you know, we run to that which seems like the, the worldly thing. I, I remember a time in my life being really, really depressed and so depressed, I sat down and ate a half gallon ice cream and watched a soap opera. I mean, that, that, that's how bad it was, you know? And then I got even more depressed because my stomach was getting sick and, and I'm looking at these people on the screen and it's like, you know, their life is just ridiculous, you know? <laughs> Everybody's connected by some type of a a fair relationship and, you know, this guy's the whatever, you know, how the, those things go. We do the craziest things sometimes when we get depressed. Where did David go wrong? What started this whole thing? Look at verse 1 again. He says, I said in my heart. That's where David's problem began. I said in my heart. It started when he began to listen to his heart. There was a song years ago. Christian rock group used to sing. The chorus went, listen to your heart. It's a catchy tune, but wrong message. You know why? Because the Bible, you see, declares in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what the Bible says about our hearts. Don't listen to your heart. The Bible says in Mark 7, verse 21, for out of a person's heart come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and wickedness and deceit and eagerness for lustful pleasure and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. That's your heart. That's my heart. 
That's what's in the heart of man. That's what the heart is capable of. I can get into so much trouble when I'm being ruled by my heart or what we might say being ruled by my emotions. When my emotions are getting the best of me, my emotions can play tricks on me. My emotions can blow things out of proportion. My emotions can get me to start thinking that my friends are my enemies. My emotions can do that type of thing. When I take my focus off of the Lord, my emotions can can affect me in a way to take my um, my my focus off of the Lord and place it upon the wrong thing. Listen, I don't trust my heart one bit. One bit. David listens to his heart. He follows his heart. And it's disastrous is the result. Notice he says, there's nothing better for me than to run to the Philistines. Was there nothing better for David? Was there nothing better for David and Israel among God's people? Was there nothing better for him? Is this really a true statement? Is not the love of the Lord and his kindness and his goodness and his mercy something better? But David goes here and he doubts God's care for him. It was Spurgeon who said this. To doubt the loving kindness of God is thought by some to be a very small sin. But it is my firm conviction that to doubt the kindness and the faithfulness and the love of God is a very heinous offense. You see, it's this type of thing that leads to a whole host of other problems. And we see that here in this chapter. And we'll see it a little bit further as we go on in the story in the coming weeks. But let's consider here quickly before we go the results of David's failure. Number one, he leads others into compromise. We pick it up in verse two. Then David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Moak, the king of Gath. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath and he and his men and each man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. That's one of the things that, 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 that is true about compromise is that it affects you, but it also affects those who are around you. Your compromise leads others into sin. Your compromise can have the effect of leading others into compromise. A person might say, hey, I know this isn't what the Lord wants me to do, but you know what? I'm willing to take my lumps. I'm willing to to run the risk. I'm willing to deal with the effects that it might have upon my life. The problem is it's not just your life that gets affected. The problem is that most of the time it doesn't just affect you, but it affects your spouse It affects your kids. It affects your family members. It affects your mother. It affects your father. It affects your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. David's sin would have a a strong effect upon those who are with him. It wasn't just going to have a negative effect upon his own life, but it would have an effect upon the life of his men. The second thing we see is that When David goes to the land of the Philistines, Saul ends his pursuit. Notice verse 4. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, and so he sought him no more. Saul had been seeking David every day for three years. But now he stops. 
Because David went to the land of the Philistines. Now note this, if you are a committed Christian, and I stress that phrase, committed, if you are a committed Christian, the enemy is after you. Your life is under attack. The enemy has a target on your back. We are in a spiritual battle. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's an enemy who is after us. It was Alan Redpath who said this, the committed man of God is against sin and all the powers of evil are against him. In such a warfare, there is no intermission at all. The devil never takes a vacation. And that's what Saul really is a picture here of. For three years, he's relentless day and night. He's pursuing after David. But the minute that David goes to the land of the enemy, the the minute that David flees to the world, Saul stops. That's what happens when we compromise. Turn to the world and the devil lets up his attack. Turn to the world and the devil has you right where he wants you. Now, some of you might be thinking, now, wait a second. Wasn't this the goal? Wasn't this what David was looking for? Isn't this what he wanted? That Saul would stop chasing after him? Listen, it might have been the goal that David wanted, but it was not the goal that God wanted. The goal that God had for David was to be king. The goal that God had for David was to rule over Israel. Now listen, to get there, the goal that that he had for him was to be king and to get there through the means and along the road that God was paving for David. And this was part of it, that Saul would be chasing him around. Listen, God has a goal. He has a destiny for each one of us. He has something that he has called you to. Something that up ahead in the next year or two or three or ten that God is paving and preparing the way. And this is what he has for you. But to get there, to get to that place, that which he has laid out to be your destiny, you've got to go along the road that he has paved for you. And you can't run from it. You can't seek to escape from it because God is not going to be able to achieve what he wants to in your heart. And in your life, unless you are willing to go down that road. This departure of David into the world might have gave him some relief from his depression. But it probably created a false sense of security in his heart. And I ask you this, at what cost? We'll read in a couple more chapters when we get to chapter 29 that David and his men, they almost lose everything here. Their city is burned. Their families are taken captive. And this all occurred because they were where they weren't supposed to be. In the land of the Philistines. David being in this place at this particular time creates a false sense of security. I'm sure he might have experienced some momentary moments of, of, you know, pleasure here and thinking that, hey, you know, I'm not depressed anymore and there's this peace. But the type of peace that comes with compromise is deceiving. It's kind of like when you take drugs or you take, you know, aspirin, or you take some Tylenol. What does it do? It masks the pain. It doesn't heal you. It just, it masks the pain. That's going on there in your head or or there in your body. It, it masks that pain. It allows you to forget the pain and the problems for a short period of time. And that's what the devil does. He lets up because he's got you right where he wants you. 
So David's compromise here, it, it results in others following him into his compromise. Saul lets up the chase. Number three, David tries to find favor in the eyes of the world. Verse five, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes. Now think about this. David suddenly wanting to be accepted by the Philistines, by the enemy. What was that about? The guy who goes out against, you know, the uncircumcised giant Goliath who's defying the armies of the living God. Suddenly he's now, hey, you know, can I find favor in your eyes? But that's what happens when we compromise. Instead of seeking to find favor in God's eyes, we're looking to find favor in the eyes of those who shouldn't matter. The eyes of the world. So David says, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziglag that day. And therefore Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. Sixteen months go by here. So here we see David wanting to find favor in the eyes of King Achish, and he calls himself Achish's servant. Now, what was David's reward for this? He's given a city. But he ends up dwelling there for 16 months. This was a dark time in the life of David. We have no record during this time of David writing any psalms, of David writing any songs to the Lord. This was not a high point in his spiritual life. It was a dark time. It was a dry time. Meyer put it as the sweet singer was mute at this time. You know, I have found people who have gone back into the world, who have backslidden. I found that two years can go by just like that before they even realize what's happened. How did I get here? What took place? During this period, these 16 months in David's life, he's virtually out of fellowship with God. The fourth thing we see happening in David's life is he begins to lead a double life. We pick it up in verse 8. And David and his men went up and raided the Gezerzites and the Gerizites and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys and the camel and the apparel and returned and came to Achish. And then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say against the southern area of Judah and against the southern area of the Jermalites and against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did, and thus was his behavior all the time that he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And so Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people of Israel utterly abhor him, and therefore he will be my servant forever. David is pretending to be a friend of the Philistines. He's pretending to go in and attack his own people, the area of Judah, when in reality what he was doing was attacking the enemies of Israel and the friends of the Philistines. But in order to cover up his sin, he had to kill everybody. In order to cover up his sin, it had to be just just an open-ended massacre. 
And for 16 months, David is deceiving and murdering and killing and living a lie. And this is about as far as a person can get. David wasn't listening to God. He wasn't hearing from God. He wasn't seeking God. And and there's no way in here that he was doing God's will, although it wouldn't surprise me at all if David during this time, because he was killing the enemies, was trying to rationalize his position in being in this place. Because that's so often is what we try to do, isn't it? When we find ourselves where we're not supposed to be. We find ourselves rationalizing our sin. David's depression had now delivered him over to sin and sin had firmly put its grasp upon him. And that was the enemy's goal. And it was accomplished. Now, real quick, look at the first two verses of chapter 28. Here's where it hits its low. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Note that. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle and you and your men. And so David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. We find David at this place where now he's ready to go out against his own people. He's ready to go fight against the armies of Israel. Now, this is one of those stories, like one of those movies where right at this point where you're suddenly going, no way, David can't do this. He can't go and fight against Israel. He can't go and fight against the very people that God has called him to to lead and be their king. He won't do this. And then right across the screen, when you're getting all into it, what's going to happen? It says to be continued. That's what happens here at this particular Now, the good news is, a little preview, David is going to come out of this, but the bad news is that it's going to take something very radical to shake him up and to wake him up. You see, God started the work in David and he was going to finish it, and that's what we'll see in these next few chapters. But I want us to quickly close tonight by thinking about some of the lessons here from chapter 27. The first is that none of us are above depression. All of us are susceptible to come under the the cloud of depression. Some might fall a little harder than others, but we all can find ourselves going there. And here's what we need to remember is that depression in and of itself is not sin. Depression in and of itself is not sin, but it's what we do when we are in that depressed state that will make it sin or not. Now, the scary thing is this, is that depression can very quickly lead to sin. It's not sin in and of itself. Spurgeon, man, he struggled radically with depression. That was his the, the, the thing he wrestled with. So all of us, we can deal with this. The second thing that we see is, is what this means is that when we get depressed, that there's always a choice that we have to make. There's always going to be a fork in the road. And this is the one thing that I want you to see and, and take note of before you walk out of here tonight is that there's always a choice. You see, there's always two options. You can either grab a hold of the Lord and trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, or we can take matters into our own hands and lean on our own understanding. That's what David does here. He does the latter. What David should have done, he should have grabbed the hold of the Lord. You see, he could have thought back about the promises that God had given to him. He could have gone back and remembered the counsel that he received from Samuel and from Jonathan and from Abigail, his wife. 
He could have thought back to all the times that God had delivered him from the hand of Saul already. He could have grabbed a hold of all the great lessons that God had taught him up to this point. In other words, David could have done what we've seen him do already, strengthen himself in the Lord. That's what David could have done and should have done, but he doesn't. But that's what we need to do. That's how we need to respond. If you're in that place tonight, you've been struggling with depression. You need to grab a hold of the Lord and the promises that he's given to you in the word. If David had gone down that road, think of what would have been eliminated from his life. The agony, the the tragedy that happens in chapter 29. It could have been eliminated. Lives could have been saved. Things could have been so different. The third thing that we learn here is I think one of the big keys to handling depression is this, that we need to confess our depression to God. In other words, we need to be real. We need to be willing to invite him into the midst of our depression. You know, sometimes I think we can get embarrassed because, you know, we we live in a great place. We've experienced great things. We're as Christians living here in America. We're not going through persecution like in other places. And so we can find ourselves kind of being, you know, God, why am I depressed? Why am I going through this? You know, I shouldn't be. It's easy to think, man, what's wrong with me? What's happening? What's the deal? And so we try to hide it from God. We try to conceal it from thinking that that he's going to condemn us for it. But God, listen, he won't. He won't condemn us. He won't leave us in it. God's goal is to walk us out of the pit of despair but we need to give him the chance to do it. And we do that by being real. We do that by inviting him into that situation. You see, it's only when we invite God into our depression that he can do something about it. And of course, what God will do in that time, what he does in those times where we're struggling in that way is he points us to his goodness and his plan for our life. He reminds us of all the things that he has done. He reminds us of Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. He reminds us that nothing can separate us from his love. He reminds us that the work that he started in us, that he's going to finish. And he will tell us ever so firmly that he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness a new nature, divine power, and great and precious promises. In those times, God wants to minister that to our hearts. If we'll invite him into that situation. If we will be real. Well, we stop here tonight. Kind of leaves us hanging. Chapter 28, we'll pick it up in a couple weeks. The rest of the chapter deals with Saul and how he goes to the witch of Endor. He's really sinking to new lows. And then we move into chapter 29 where it picks up this story. And that's where we'll pick it up a few weeks from now because next Wednesday night, plan to be here. It's going to be a great night. We have our Thanksgiving Eve service, a night where different people in the body are going to share some testimony. Um, we're going to have a neat time of special music, a neat time of, of uh, worship, and we're going to have communion. And uh, it's always just a real blessed, blessed time. So plan on being here uh, for that. Let's uh, go ahead and stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word 
And Lord, I pray that all of us here, we would indeed be real with you. And Lord, I know that in a group this size here tonight, there are probably some who have been struggling this week with depression. Lord, I pray that they would stand upon your promises. They would stand upon the truth. They would stand upon what they know to be true about you. Your will, your way, your plan. And Lord, I pray that for all of us that we would walk the road that you have paved that leads toward the destiny that you have called us to. That we wouldn't seek to run to the world, but that we would put our hope and our trust in you, the God who is faithful and true and always good and always right. We give you our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.